Good morning. Nice to see you. And uh, Happy New Year. Did you have a good Christmas? <laughs> Did you have a good Christmas? Great. Anyone else wearing Christmas clothes? If you're wearing a Christmas clothes, shoes, jumper, yeah, very good. Yeah, nice, good. I am. This is my Christmas shirt. Looks denim, but it's not. It's kind of woolly. I'll give anyone permission just to gently rub my arm later, if you want to. That's just gently like that. No, okay. Do I look like double denim? Oh, I do. I look like double denim. Going back to the 80s, baby. Great. Uh, apologies for anybody who likes wearing double denim. Uh, it's good to see you. Good to be back on a Sunday morning. And I'm going to be speaking to you this morning from uh, Psalm 73. This isn't really part of a series because it's kind of the first Sunday back and some schools are back, some are not. So it's kind of the first Sunday, but we'll, we've got a brand new series that we'll start next week. So this is a bit of a standalone one, I suppose, and uh, felt God uh, say, preach on this with the title, Why Should I Be a Good Christian in 2019? So if you don't like the title, don't bring it up with me. My answer will be, that's what I felt God told me to, to, to title it. So there you go. I've um, pr- printed it out for you on sheets. It'll come up behind you. Kind of going to go through it, kind of section by section, virtually line by line. Because um, again, that's what I felt God told me to do. If you don't like it, take it up with him. Uh, I feel like a lot of disclaimers this morning, isn't there? It's all down to God, not down to me. That's fine, isn't it? That's good. So let me, uh, let's, let's just read it, Psalm 73, then we'll get into it. The psalmist says this, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I'd nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. I have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. If I'd spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. Till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They're like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. 
Whom have I in heaven but you, and earth has nothing I desire besides you? My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Lord Jesus, we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would speak to each one of us this morning and you would instruct us by your word, which is powerful and sharp and goes right into the very depths of our souls and our minds and change how we think about things. So we say, Holy Spirit, come and teach us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're going to look under this under four headings. The problem, the reason, the reality, and the result. So let's start off with a problem. Let's focus on the first three verses. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. The psalmist begins by declaring the goodness of God to the pure in heart. Now, we've got to understand, the pure in heart are not people who are perfect, but it's people who are trying to follow God with a right heart and a right motive. Basically, people who are trying to love God, serve God, and follow him. And the psalmist says that God is good to them because goodness is one of the foundational, unchanging characteristics of God. God is good to them because God is good. Can someone please say amen to that? Bless you. But despite this being the case, the psalmist, who clearly counts himself as pure in the heart, he is a faithful follower of God, he says, I nearly slipped. I nearly lost my foothold, meaning he nearly lost his faith in God. So this is serious. This is a picture of one minute the psalmist walking along a path of truth and godliness and suddenly he finds himself beginning to think about walking along a completely different path. It's like he's walking along the path with God and suddenly the path has taken him to the edge of a cliff and he is kind of one step away from slipping and falling over the edge. And I'm sure that there are many people here this morning, you can relate in a way to what the psalmist is saying. Maybe you've had difficult times in your life. Maybe like Diana, there were chunks of 2018 that were particularly difficult for you. Maybe you felt like this. Maybe through an illness. Maybe through the death of a loved one. Maybe there was a prayer that hasn't been answered. Maybe somebody else did something to you and you're living with the consequence of their bad action. Maybe you did some stuff that you wished you hadn't done. Maybe you think God let you down in some way. The psalmist really has his own reasons for feeling like this and we'll look at those in a moment. But whether our reasons are the same or similar to his doesn't matter. I think the point is we can understand all of us, what the psalmist is feeling. And maybe, just maybe, the answer for him 
might just help us if we're still dealing with stuff from our past, 2018 or before, or to prepare us for whatever might happen in 2019. So I suppose the big question is this, why is the psalmist feeling like this? And the answer is, he says in verse 3, when he envied the arrogant because he saw the prosperity of the wicked. He envied the arrogant when he saw the prosperity of the wicked. What caused his feet to slip was envy. He was looking at what others had or what others were or what they seemed to have or be. And when he compared it to what he was or who he was or what he had, he didn't like it. They seemed to be more than him. They seemed to have more than him. And that made him envious. And when it says here the arrogant and the wicked, primarily he means people who don't know God. People who don't worship God, don't follow God, don't love God, are not walking with God. We tend to think, don't we, of wicked as people who do cruel and horrible things. But the Old Testament tends to use that term or that word, how it's translated generically as those who aren't actively following God. And of course, some of them might do horrible and wicked, you know, terrible things. Do you get that? The word wicked is not quite the same. We tend to, they're a wicked person, means they must be doing horrible things. The Old Testament tends to say wicked people are those who are not following God, who don't know God. So you just have to get your head around that. And the psalmist, as a follower of God, it's like he's looking at people who don't follow God and all that he can see is that they are prospering. They are doing well. They seem to have money. They seem to have influence, less troubles, less strife. And when he compares that to what he has and his life, he says, it caused me to nearly slip, to nearly fall, to nearly lose my faith. So maybe the very first lesson that we can see here is how destructive envy is, how powerful it is to look on at what others have, compare it to us which is really what envy is. And in our day and age, it seems to me that most, lots of people use social media as a means for portraying the best bits of their life. Me having a wonderful experience. Me having a great meal with my friends. Me wearing my new Christmas you know, top or whatever. I, me at the New Year's Eve fireworks displays. We take the New Year's Eve fireworks display in London when I watched it back the day after, you know, New Year's, most people were there standing up with their, with their phone, videoing or taking a photograph of the fireworks. Now, just think this through. Number one, they're there seeing it. Number two, the BBC are capturing it with much better cameras. So why would you stand there doing that? Unless you wanted to go back and say, me having a great time at the firework display. And I think one thing about that is that for people then looking on who are on social media all the time, it can appear that everybody else is leading a great life. No troubles. Exciting thing here. Exciting things there. Doing this, doing that. And if you're not careful, you can become envious of their life, which isn't really their real life. It's just the bit of their life that they choose to put out there on social media. Do you get that? 
Have we all worked that out? Nobody puts a bit, oh, I'm just feeling terrible today. Oh, it's awful. People don't tend to do that. So we have to be a little bit careful because we've seen how powerful and destructive envy can be. That's really what the psalmist is saying here. So before we get into what the psalmist is actually going to describe as the prosperity of the wicked, just a couple of things. Firstly, we've got to remember, this is an exaggerated picture because we are seeing it through his envious eyes. In other words, he is going to exaggerate because he's feeling like this. You know, they never have this, they never have that. It's an exaggeration. But secondly, just because he's seeing it through these envious eyes doesn't mean it isn't true. What he describes is true. There are a lot of people who think and act like this. Not every one of them might do all of them, but lots of them do lots of them, and probably all of them do some of them. Are you with me? Did you follow that? It's, it's true in what he says. He's just he's seeing it through envious eyes. So they all do this. They all do that. Well, not quite, but lots of them do. And most people do some of them. So we can't just kind of discount what he says. Let's run through them, the reason. Verse 4 to verse 12. He says they have no struggles, verse 4. He says their bodies are healthy and strong. They have no illness, verse 4, 5. He says they're proud. And here he doesn't mean proud as in like proud of a job well done or proud of a child who achieves something. It means they consider themselves not to need God's help or anybody else's help. They are proud. That's their, that's their attitude. In the words of the Simon and Garfunkel song, they are a rock, they are an island. They need no one. Are you with me? That's the kind of thing that he's getting at here. He says in verse 6, they clothe themselves with violence. Some of them are using violence against other people, even nations against other nations, to rob them, to enslave them to get what they want from them. Those who are prepared to hurt and even kill other people, contrary to God's laws and the laws of the nation. And they seem to get away with it. They seem not to be being brought to justice. I think in our day and age, we can understand this. If we read our newspapers, uh, look around us, we can understand this. I remember the time this hit me most graphically was actually in Mexico when on a Saturday afternoon, I went with Oscar to the shopping mall. And outside the entrance to the shopping mall were five or six um, cars, trucks, expensive, and about 25 guys all dressed in fancy stuff and jewellery, etc., playing music loudly and basically having their own party in about a dozen spaces, car parking spaces, at the front of the shopping mall. And... Uh, uh, for everyone to see, old, young, teenagers, as they walked into the shopping mall, basically walked past this kind of party. And I asked Oscar, why didn't the police move them on? And who were these guys? And he said, well, they're from the local drug gang. And they had this kind of do every weekend, Saturday and Sunday. And they do it so that they can show off their clothes, their money, their cars, and also the fact that they are above the law. Because the last time the police there raided this drug gang, the following Friday, they went out, hijacked, using violence, about 30 uh, coaches, drove them to all the major roads around Guadalajara, turned them over, burned them, and brought a city of 7 million people to a standstill. 
as a warning to the police that if you ever raid us again, we will bring havoc to this city. And guess what? The police never did it again. And so now this gang, clothed in their violence, sit where everyone can see them every weekend. Kind of get a picture, you know, of I think what the psalmist is saying. He goes on, he says, number five, he says, they have callous hearts and evil imaginations. They speak malice and they threaten oppression, verse seven and eight. Now he doesn't say, the psalmist doesn't say specifically what he has in mind, but it doesn't take us very much use of our imaginations to work out the kind of terrible things that people do with their evil imaginations. He's got to be talking something about slavery because as someone whose people had been enslaved by other nations on a number of opportunities, he's got to be thinking that. But there could be a whole host of other ones. Number six, he goes on, he says, with their mouths they take possession of heaven and earth and declare God knows nothing. The psalmist is looking at a world full of people who don't know God and are very happy to declare there is no God. And if there is a God, they don't know what he's doing anyway. And they're very happy in declaring how people should act, what they should do, what they shouldn't do. And acting in that way themselves, completely ignorant of whatever God may want. And because they believe that in their hearts, it kind of comes out of their mouth with a, with a confidence. It's like it's their gospel. It's like it's absolute truth to them. Absolutely how they see it. And so the psalmist, it feels like they've taken possession of heaven and earth. It's like they've assumed ownership of both because of the way they speak about it. It sounds like they've kind of got the right, the authority to declare what is and what isn't even to the extent of declaring that God, if he exists, knows nothing, has nothing to say about this. To the psalmist, it's like what God has created and sustains and has plans for and has rules for has literally been stolen by the wicked, stolen by those who don't know him. And now they are rewriting everything that God has said. What God said people are, they're now rewriting so they can choose to be what they want. When God says, don't do this, say, well, we'll do it. What does it matter? What does God know? When God says, no, no, do this and be like this, they say, well, just do whatever you want. What makes you successful, wealthy, happy, powerful, etc., etc. And all this together, I think, makes the psalmist feel like he's living in a world which is in the possession of, of the wicked. People who don't know God or follow God now rule over the world that God has made. And the psalmist knows that God has made it. But he's living in this tension, this terrible tension. God, you made this world. These are your people. This is your world. And yet it feels like it's been stolen because of how they speak and act. And, and they're getting on well. They're doing really well, it seems to him. Can you, can you get some of the some of the that's going on in his, in his heart. And not just content with being wrong themselves, he says, they're spreading their lies to other people, verse 10. Other people are like lapping it up, like water, like you drink. Oh, yeah, right, okay, great, great, brilliant, great, we'll do that. 
Now, my question is, is that not the same how we can feel today? I mean, in every newspaper that you could buy today in England, there will be an article or a report or an opinion which will be completely at odds with what God says. Well, how God thinks we should live. It may not be stated directly that way, but the article as it's written, reporting stuff that's going on in Parliament or, 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 or someone giving a comment about it, will be completely at odds to how God says we should live. I'm not having a go at newspapers. I'm just saying newspapers reflect society. And because our society doesn't, most don't want to follow God, that's what comes out in the news. I don't think it's any different in England today. If you think it's different, then show me the part where you live. Because it doesn't feel very different to me. In the psalmist days, probably things like this were spoken out, mainly. Today, we've got new, more extensive means of communication with the internet. But, you know, the root cause is the same. People would rather believe in nothing or anything or themselves rather than believe in the God who made them. The root is the same. That's what the psalmist is seeing. And verse 12, he says, they're free of care and they keep amassing wealth. I don't think I even need to say anything about that. How did most of our football clubs get owned by people that have dubious millions? I mean, just how? So we, we, we understand, don't we? I think we can feel something of what the psalmist, if you like, was feeling. We can, you know, we can understand a bit of that. Okay, let's go on to the reality. 13 to 20. Are you still with me? Bless you. So with this long list of ways the psalmist perceives the wicked are prospering, he decides that what he has been doing, namely trying to live for God, has been in vain. It's been a waste of time. In this moment, he would probably tell us, don't bother to be good Christians for 2019. It won't get you anywhere. It's of no profit to you. He says, I've kept myself innocent of the very things that I've seen them do, uh, but in keeping my hands clean and my heart pure, it hasn't been worth it. Doesn't feel like it's been worth it, verse 13. In fact, he says, it's been tormenting me day after day. It's like every morning brings a new torment. Every day brings a new way that he's able to see, looking on, perceiving that the wicked are prospering. Whilst he is profiting nothing from his godliness, verse 14. Verse 15, he says, and I can't even speak out all these frustrations because if I do that, I might cause some of God's children who are faithfully following God to stumble. And then that would be a terrible sin. So I can't even talk about it. I can't even express it out loud. So it's, he says, I'm just forced to sit and think about it. And all that is bringing him is deep trouble. And I just picture this psalmist going into a dark, quiet room and just putting his hands into his head in utter despair and confusion by what he sees, unable to make sense of it, unable to speak to anyone about it. And honestly, my heart goes out to him. I think I understand a little of what he's going through. I don't think the world we live in is that different than the world that he lived in. I understand his reasoning I think I understand something of what he was experiencing. That was good timing. But then everything changes. Verse 17. 
Everything changes, and it changes for good when God comes into the picture. When God comes into the picture, when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. The psalmist goes to the sanctuary, goes to the temple. He goes to the place where God is known and worshipped and taught and followed. The modern day equivalent would be coming here on a Sunday morning. It's like he says, I went to church. I went to be with those people who are following God, worshipping him, learning about him. And as he gathers with God's people and he joins with them in focusing on God, so suddenly he starts to see things differently. In fact, God begins to show him things from God's perspective. And the first, his perspective about the prosperity of the wicked changes. They may appear strong and proud and confident and owners of heaven and earth and in control of their own destiny, but actually their final destiny is not in their hands. Verse 17. In fact, they are on slippery ground, not firm ground. In fact, verse 18, they are going to be cast down to ruin. In fact, verse 19, they are heading for destruction. They will be completely swept away. And how about this for one of the most sobering pictures of the fate of those who choose not to acknowledge and follow God? He says they'll be like characters from a dream that are instantly dismissed and forgotten once you awake. I don't dream very often, but you know, sometimes when you dream, it feels like it's so real. You know, you're asleep and maybe there's a green Martian wearing a Superman suit and wellies chasing you with a crossbow. You know, one of those kind of dreams and it's so real. And you wake up in a moment and your heart is pounding and you basically look around the room, you know, where's the Martian? And you look around, and then suddenly you realize, it's just a dream. It's fantasy. No Martian, it's gone. You smile, get up, get on with your day. Don't think about it anymore. All the wicked's wealth, power, arrogance, vehement arguments about God, rebellion to God, all the things they'd say, if I see God face to face, this is what I'm going to tell him. All that will be dismissed in a moment like a dream, like a fantasy when they stand before God. It's kind of what the psalmist sees. And so without anything changing in the actual reality, just by looking ahead to their final destiny, the psalmist sees that so much of what the wicked are basing their lives on, that looks so good, looks so appealing to him, through his envious eyes, is actually rubbish, is actually a road to ruin. So it changes in a moment. So that's his perspective on them changes, but then also his perspective on himself changes. Let's look at the result. 21 to 28. God now gives him a new perspective on his own position. He sees when he was envious, he was bitter, senseless. He calls himself a brute beast. He was out of control. He's just, just talking rubbish, seeing things wrong, processing them wrong. Verse 21, verse 22. But in verse 23, I, he sees the truth that God is always with him. But God's always with me. 
In fact, he's holding him by his hand. Verse 24, that God is guiding him. And in fact, one day he's not only going to guide him while he's on earth, but one day he's going to take the psalmist to be with him in glory. In fact, the psalmist realizes that everything that he wants and longs for is actually in heaven because that's where God is. And therefore, he can make this amazing statement, earth has nothing that he desires beyond knowing God. It's an amazing turnaround. Before, he was envious of the wicked because they seemed to have everything they desired. But now, when he sees things from God's perspective, from God's eternal perspective, the psalmist is not envious of the wicked at all because they've got nothing that he wants because they haven't got the one thing that he wants, which is God. He says, yeah, one day this body's going to fail and die. We will all die one day. Sorry if that's news to you, but it's true. You can freeze yourself, send yourself to space, spend your billions doing that. You're going to die unless Jesus comes back beforehand. I could have saved those people a lot of money. He says, but God is my strength. God is my portion forever. On earth, in fact, he might have nothing. He's going to die. But in heaven, he's going to live forever and he's going to have everything because he's going to have God. And those who choose to live away from God or unfaithful to him whilst on earth, they're going to be destroyed. And the, it's like the psalmist is making a decision. I'm not going to envy them anymore. I'm not going to join the path that they're walking. No matter how appealing it might be in the here and now, he says, verse 28, I'm going to stay close to the Lord because that's a good place to be. In fact, that's the best place to be. He says, my trust is going to be in God. God's going to be my place of safety, my place of refuge. And I'm going to tell anybody else that will listen that that's the case. It's a great psalm, isn't it? I think it's a great psalm. If I read the paper and get upset, I read this psalm. <laughs> think about an application. I think sometimes it's very easy to forget how good God is and how good it is to be near him. I'll just say that again. Sometimes I think it's very easy to forget how good God is and how good it is to be near him. In Zimbabwe, when we were over there uh, just before uh, Christmas, we were standing around one of those kind of open fires with lots of big logs and standing there and the Zimbabweans were dancing and the English people were looking on, uh, which was the right way round. And, and it was warm. I thought, God, it's quite warm here, big logs. I'll walk away from the fire. I walked away from the fire. Guess what? It's freezing cold. Oh, it's freezing. I'm getting back near the fire. Sometimes it's only when you move away from the fire that you realize how warm it is. You kind of get a bit settled there. I think it's easy as a Christian to sometimes feel like that. Very easy to look at others or look at the world and become envious of their apparent success or wealth or influence or power or confidence or freedom and to conclude it's better to pursue what they seem to have than to appreciate what we already have as Christians, which is Christ, which is God, which is everything. And I don't think the answer is for us sometimes to shut ourselves away and not look at all that. But rather, it's to focus on the fact that God is with us. God is near us. God is holding our hands. To never lose the wonder, the marvel of the fact that the God of the universe, if you're a Christian, he's your Lord and he's my Lord. He's your friend and he's my friend. He's your saviour and he's my saviour. He's your provider and he's my provider. He's your comforter and he's my comforter. 
shouldn't we aim? We shouldn't aim to be good Christians in 2019 to earn brownie points or to somehow pay God back or, or because we think we're better than other people, any of those reasons. We should aim to live as near to God as we possibly can because God is near to us. We are those who, of all the people on earth, get the opportunity to live near to God, to live in relationship with him. It's not so much we ought to be good, but more we get this opportunity, more we get this privilege. We get the privilege of knowing God through this year. And maybe the psalmist, having walked with God for many years, somehow forgot the great privilege of that. And when he forgot it, his eyes started to wander. And his eyes started to look at all manner of other things that shine brightly and say, this is the way, this is the way. And where his eyes went, guess what followed next? His feet. And that's how he ended up nearly slipping. Let me tell you a true story that happened just before Christmas that I had the privilege of being a part of. And that just showed to me again, because, you know, I'm stupid lots of the time. And I forget, and I move away from the fire, and I can forget just as easy as the next Christian how good God is. And God really drilled it home to me through this. Just for any of you who don't know, the guy who used to lead this church is now in uh, New Hampshire in America in a city there, a small city called Portsmouth. Uh, so I know him, and I know some people in Seattle across the other side, and those are really the only two Christian leaders that I know in America. So let me just tell you that. Back in November, I think it was, we were a couple of prayer days for new ground. And while I was praying, I felt God say to me, in 2019, you need to go and visit some of the new ground church plants, spend 24 hours, 48 hours with them, helping them, which is something that I, I, I do, but I felt him particularly say three places. One of them was Maastricht. So I came out of the prayer time, went to go and get a cup of coffee, and who should I bump into but the couple who are leading the church plant in Maastricht. And I was just thinking to myself, I must speak to Martin and Lisa to go and see them. Oh, there they are. So I said to them, how are you? How's things going? They said, great, but we're overwhelmed. We started with 12 people. We had 60 last week. We don't know what to do. We don't know what to do for 2019. Now, even stupid old me thought, mm, maybe there's a moment here. Would you like me to come out and try and help you? Fantastic. They said, when can you come? Soon as possible. Any chance before Christmas? Truth. Look through my diary. The only time that was free was the week before Christmas. That week leading up to it. Because it's the week before Christmas. No one does anything the week before Christmas. Anyway, it was free. God said, go. So I jumped on the Eurostar and went. So got there on the Wednesday, spent all afternoon uh, with them, uh, kicking some stuff around about church. And in the evening, they said, we got a prayer meeting. It's only their third ever prayer meeting uh, that we've done. Uh, you know, thought it'd be nice to meet some of the people in the church plant. So great. So I go along to this prayer meeting in a flat. There's about a dozen people, a dozen people and a girl called Natalie who is crying from the moment we walked in. And Natalie is crying because she's American. She was in the Hague for three, sorry, in Maastricht for four months as part of her university course. She went on their alpha course, which they started in September. They started two things, an alpha course and a Sunday morning. She went on the alpha course and got saved. First person saved in that church plant, which is worth a shout, I think. First person. But now she's going back to America. Well done. It's like panto. Boo. She's going back to America. She's got to go back to America to carry on her studies. And she's just got saved, been with these lovely people, and now she's going back. And this is the last meeting that they're going to have when she's there. 
So she's come along because she wants to say goodbye and be prayed for. So we pray in little groups and we pray for stuff. And at the end, they say, right, let's pray for Natalie. So we pray for Natalie, lay hands on her. And I'm standing there. I feel God gave me a word for her, just about like cinema rushers take you to your seat, even though they don't know much about the film. She's someone, though she's a very new Christian, she'll be able to lead people to the place where God is. Don't worry that she doesn't know all the answers, what's going on in the film. She can, when she gets back to America, lead people to him. So we prayed, and I said, I've got a word for you. So I started giving her the word. Halfway through the word, I felt the Holy Spirit say to me, ask her where she's from, because he speaks like that. Ask her where he's from. Ask her where he's from. And I'm now giving the word to her, but I'm, I'm, I'm arguing with the Holy Spirit. Why? Oh, what does it matter where she's from? She's from America. It's a big place. I actually thought, I don't know many. That, I, I only know Ian and Emma and Bo and Alexis in it. I know two people in America. Ask her where he's from. Okay. Where are you from? She says, oh, she says, you probably won't have heard from it. I said, where is it? She said, oh, it's uh, a place in New Hampshire. I said, all right, a place in New Hampshire. I know two people in America that lead churches. One of them's in New Hampshire. Whereabouts? She said, oh, a small place. It's a town, not really a city. A place called Portsmouth. I said, so I said, Portsmouth, I said, you know North Church in the center? Yeah, she said, I said, I preach there. She's floods of tears, snot and everything. <laughs> I, so I tell her, this, look, I know, I know people who lead the church there in Portsmouth. She knows the building. She knows where, exactly where it is. And well, she's crying. Half the people in the church plant are crying. I'm kind of, young. sorry, God, you know, how stupid am I? <clears throat> right? That you would bring this guy like me who's only there for 24 hours, right? To, to tell her, she then says, she says, that's great, I'll go along, that's great, but I'm going to, I'm going to my university's in Connecticut. I said, that's all right, he oversees a church in Connecticut. <laughs> she does. Now, here's the, here's the thing, right? Two of the ladies in the church plant had been on the internet that day trying to find churches in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, or Connecticut from New Frontiers, couldn't find any. God could have led either one of them to the right internet site but he didn't because he wanted natalie to know that he's near her that he's holding her by her right hand and he wanted that master at church plant to know that the first person saved he's got them he's going to look after them and he wanted me to know that because i'm stupid and he wanted you to know that because he wanted you to be encouraged that in 2019 if you're a christian god is near you that he is holding your right and when the psalmist stopped focusing on what the wicked have had, which he didn't, he saw that he had something that the wicked didn't have, which was much more valuable than everything they had. And that was God. I don't know what this year will hold for us as a church, you as individually, for me. Individual, I don't know. Probably some ups, probably some downs. But you know what? If our goal this year is to stay near to God, to know God and to know him better, then really it doesn't matter what circumstances, whether good or bad. The circumstances, good or bad, are just a means of getting to know him better. We're, we're, we're not living like everybody else for the outcomes, the results, for achieving this, achieving that, getting money, getting influence, putting it in the bank, get the pension. That's not what we're living for. We can focus on the journey, the living day by day, the learning to rely on God because he is near and because he is good. 
And so we can say, like the psalmist, but as for me, as for us, it is good to be near God. Amen? Amen.